Hi, this is Karin. This is Surveyor COA Online. Is Latin America suffering from secular stagnation? That was the opening question in a recent event at our New York headquarters, where Bloomberg's John Authors sat down to interview the IMF's Alejandro Werner on the economic panorama for Latin America at a point when the region and the world at large face uncertain times. From Brazil's structural reforms to Mexico's fourth transformation, to the effects of the U.S.-China trade battle, hear their discussion about what's ahead for Latin America in 2020. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. Podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Thank you very much. It is uh, a great pleasure and a great honor to be uh, to be invited to do this this evening, uh, and a great pleasure to to meet uh, Alejandro Verno once more. Um, uh, I've fascinated by uh, Latin America and Mexico because I was lucky enough to uh, to spend four years in Mexico City um, uh, from 2001 to 2005 in the Sexenio Fox. Uh, our alcalde was a guy called Lopez Obrador back then who seemed to be very ambitious. Um, and uh, my first daughter was, was born there, so she is now and will forever be a Chilanga. So I have great affection for Mexico and for the and for the rest of the region. Um, and I did, we did indeed meet each other covering um, Hacienda, which uh, uh, I'm proud to say I was, I was then a correspondent, Alejandro was then a, a, a deputy secretary, is your title? Deputy secretary at, at Hacienda under, under Paco Gil Diaz uh, in quite wonderful accommodation in the old presidential palace uh, in the Socolo, in the center of Mexico City. Now that reminds me of that gives me a, a lead into the first question I want to ask, which is a question about growth. And this is a question that applies to the rest of, uh, the, rest of the region as much as it does to Mexico. Are we in a situation of secular stagnation, as Larry Summers would call it, or of an, a period where there is no opportunity for the, uh, for the uh, countries of Latin America to make the economic growth that other parts of the emerging markets have done in recent years. Now, one of the things I remember from my time in Mexico is that uh, Paco Gil Diaz, you know, very, very respected uh, uh, finance minister at the time, was often referred to as the portero of the, uh, the Mexican government, the goalie. Uh, whatever happened, he was there in the goal to make sure that Mexico did not concede any economic goals. The only problem was that there was a lack of, is it arqueros? There was a lack of strikers, that's it, delanteros. Delanteros, there was a lack of strikers out there to try and create growth uh, and score. There was just this ability in the finance ministries to avert crisis, to maintain stability. So that's my first important question. Is it possible for the IMF or the finance ministers or central banks of, uh, of, uh, of the region to be more than porteros? Is it possible? Is there really secular stagnation? How can Latin America grow? 
Thanks, John. And, and I mean, it's a pleasure to, to be here again. And I thank the, the council and, and, and John to, to, to put together this, uh, this very nice event that we have every year in which we discuss the outlook for, for the region. And it's uh, very nice to, to meet John again. And we were talking about his period in Mexico. I mean, when uh, Fox was president and uh, I mean, the PRI had left power after 70 something years uh, of a one party system and Mexico was basically evolving into, into a much more active uh, democracy. And I think there were a lot of fears if macroeconomic stability that was achieved after the, the crisis of 1994 with President Cedillo was going to, to stay in a much more competitive uh, democratic system. And, and, and I think that was achieved by many porteros. No, I think uh, there, were, there were many porteros that, 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 that were actually uh, basically taking care that a lot of uh, financially dangerous ideas uh, did not see the light of day. And I think uh, that was achieved throughout the region. I mean, except, I mean, uh, notable exceptions, but you see lots of countries in which, I mean, obviously first starting with Chile, but then Colombia, Peru, etc., uh, have achieved macro, macro stability, floating exchange rates, a healthy financial system. So everything that is under the purview of the Ministry of, of Finance has has worked quite well, uh, and and I would say that uh, given the history of Latin America with recurrent crisis, both balance of payment and financial crisis, etc., I think there was a broader an inflationary crisis, no, with many hyperinflation episodes in Peru, in Argentina, etc. Uh, uh, there was much more consensus regarding uh, what should be done to avoid this crisis that I think the consensus that you need to be a good striker. So in the sense, I think we have not achieved in Latin America a consensus of what do you need for these economies to grow. And I think also from the point of view of the economics profession, it's much harder to agree on what is needed to actually launch a self-sustaining medium-term growth process. And in that sense, I think it's something that the region is still searching for. Maybe just to put some numbers on what uh, John was saying. I mean, this year we at the fund are expecting growth to have been in 2019 0.1%. So basically, Latin America did not grow. Even if you take away Venezuela that contracted by 35%, growth is below 1%. In per capita terms, in the last four or five years, Latin America has contracted at an average rate of half a percentage point per year. Uh, if you take away Venezuela, maybe we have had a stable uh, GDP per capita. So basically the region is stagnant. What explains a little bit the stagnation is the combination of secular issues. I mean, basically Latin America is a region of a, a relatively low investment, a low total factor productivity growth, low savings, a poor quality of education, etc. So even in the best of times, we don't grow that much. And then on top of that, in the last five years, we have had, I mean, let's say, significant cyclical issues that are bringing growth uh, down, especially in the last two years. Uh, in 2019, the world economy decelerated. Commodities did not have a, a great year. Then you have domestic factors, like those countries that suffer, let's say, significant sudden stops of capital, like Argentina and Ecuador dealing with that adjustment, also bringing growth uh, down. And then 
at the end, then you had in the two largest economies in Latin America, a lot of uncertainty associated with economic policies. So when you take the case of Brazil, I mean, Brazil was coming out of its uh, negative growth and low growth years. Uh, at the end of the Dilma Rousseff period with the Petrobras scandals, et cetera, where the economy contracted cumulative by almost 8%, was coming out of that, and then a new agenda that, that has been pretty market-friendly in terms of pension reforms, privatizations, opening up of the economy, et cetera. But still, I mean, I think people were waiting to see if that agenda was actually getting traction or not. So, so that also uh, generated uncertainty or a wait-and-see attitude by uh, uh, firms, by families, uh, households, et cetera. And in the case of Mexico also, I mean, what, what is called a, a, the fourth transformation, even by the name, you say, okay, we're going to transform something. I wait and see how the transformation goes. It's very different of saying this is the continuity government. You also don't want that. But if you send a signal of continuity, people uh, continue doing what they were doing. If you say that it's a transformation, people say, well, let's wait and see where this transformation goes. And, and I'm, not, I mean, I'm not passing judgment, but it's generating a wait and see attitude from, uh, again, from the private sector, from households, et cetera, that together with some important changes on some key sectors in the Mexican economy, uh, have significantly weighed in on investment and generated a, a, a very basically zero growth in 2019. It's important just to say that also in Mexico, every first year of government, for the last three changes of government, the economy has accelerated by two percentage points. So this is not abnormal. The Peña Nieto first year of government also, however, the economy was growing at a higher rate right. before, but the deceleration has been of a 200 basis point. So, so, I mean, what you have in the case of Mexico this year is a combination of a debate against a, the, a, the debate over the USMCA, the new free trade agreement with Canada and the US, the uncertainty associated with AMLO's policies, and on top of that, a significant deceleration of manufacturing in the US. Although the US did well in 2019, the manufacturing sector with which Mexico is highly tied into it went through a deceleration and almost a recession. So all these things explain this, this low growth, but basically, as John was saying, Latin America suffered this secular problem of low growth. Other people have called it the, the, middle, the middle income trap, that maybe sometimes you find the formula through uh, generating a stable macro and some opening up of the economy to move from, a, 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 let's say, a low income country to a lower middle income economy, but then what you need for the next step in the development process are much, much more complex institutional factors, uh, human capital factors, et cetera, that are much harder to, to build, and the region has been struggling on how to put that, let's say, second stage of growth uh, together. Okay. Moving on to trade and the risks that cover the, uh, the uh, trade conflict between the US and China, what are there in the way of risks for the region? Uh, and what are the opportunities? Um, Mexico does appear to have benefited from substitution by American importers compared to China. And Latin America as a whole, the trade numbers I've seen are very poor indeed, like almost 5% reduction in trade volumes compared to the previous year. So how important is the trade issue for the continent and are there ways of uh, 
turning it into some kind of an opportunity. Okay, now that, I mean, obviously in the, in the last few years, I mean, the world, the world economy has been subject to, to, to this uh, uncertainty associated with uh, uh, the rules of the game related to, to, to international trade. And in that sense, Latin America has been exposed to it. First, uh, uh, let's say, on the first line of, of defense in the negotiation regarding the, the North America Free Trade Agreement that ended up being the USMCA Treaty. So in that sense, Mexico was, uh, suffered significantly from this uncertainty and investment in the exporting sector in Mexico uh, uh, dropped a lot starting in 2016, 2017, et cetera, given this, uh, this uncertainty. However, now that, I mean, the three countries have concluded negotiations and the treaty has been signed, I mean, obviously that opens the door to a resumption of a much more certain trade relationship in North America that has been also uh, modernized uh, in several key aspects like uh, biomedical products, uh, uh, in the service sector, etc. So, so in that sense, that would be good for the region. However, for the rest of the world, we saw in 2019, uh, the first year in which it was clearly visible that uncertainty associated with the, the trade relationship between, Russia, between China and the US significantly affected uh, manufacturing worldwide, and that dragged down the rate of growth of the world economy, affecting almost everybody, and obviously concentrating this uh, 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 slowdown in economic activity in, in, in trade patterns associated to China, that obviously affects a significant part of South America. South America is uh, tightly linked to Asia through the price of commodities and through the commodity trade. And obviously through, through these, the, uh, the region suffers. And I think looking into 2020, that's a, a po positive news for the region in the ex to the extent that this uncertainty uh, uh, seems to be significantly reduced with the stage one agreement that has been reached between the US and China. On the other hand, this agreement that has a significant component of a, that implies a commitment by China to buy more goods from the US will affect some countries in South America. No? So, in, so, in, so in that sense, uh, the big question will be how able will be these countries in South, uh, in South America to reroute whatever trade diversion effects gets created by this increase in acquisitions from China to the USA, to the US, let's say, of grains. And in that sense, the markets that the US producers are leaving should be taken over by maybe the South American countries that will be affected, but that will be a challenge that they will have to, to deal with. On the other hand, I mean, to the extent that, uh, uh, let's say, the, the, the the medium-term adjustment in the Chinese economy, in which China is slowing down in terms of growth, and at the same time is substituting its sources of, of growth from investment to consumption, obviously will put a lead on the potential growth of commodity prices. And in that sense, the countries that are most exposed to this are the, the, the Pacific Rim countries, I mean, especially Chile and, and Peru, that are exporters of metals. 
And, and in that sense, all of our uh, uh, econometric studies have shown that, for example, for example, Chile is a country that is more uh, susceptible to, to negative effects from a declining investment in China. So, so that's a little bit a, a main issues in which Latin America will be exposed to this. And as luck would have it, I, I did check on my Bloomberg terminal before I left the office. Industrial metals are at their lowest price since, uh, since the day before the US election, in fact, November 2016. So this continues to be a worrying sign for the, uh, the Andean region. One other question on the trade situation is, is there any possibility of greater Chinese direct investment in the region to act as some kind of a safeguard against problems with the uh, trade relationship with the United States? Is there a possibility that they try to deepen their access to, uh, to uh, Latin American suppliers that way? But I would say, I mean, uh, uh, the relationship between Latin America and the, the trade relationship between Latin America and the US uh, suffers significantly, but basically associated with the negotiation of, of the trade agreement between Mexico, Canada, and the US. The rest of the countries, I mean, there were some issues, you're right, vis-a-vis -vis agricultural products in Argentina and in Brazil, et cetera, that, and, and, and also with, with iron that have been smoothed out. But I, I would say that Latin America has been a region that has not been significantly exposed to these changes in the rule of the game in, in trade. Uh, but, but, but obviously, uh, uh, they were affected more through the, 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 uh, through the effects that the world economy suffered, not directly through trade actions. However, I mean, John is touching a, a pretty good point that we have seen significant increases of Chinese investment in Latin America. I don't think that, I mean, the speed at which investment moves is very different at which the speed that trade and commodity prices move. So in that sense, it's very hard to see to think that you can have a significant increase in FDI coming from China into Latin America to compensate negative movements in trade. But I think the trend is an increasing trend and, and the region has been more reliable, more reliant on investment from, from both FDI and some uh, credit flows to Latin America coming from, from China. And that uh, is going to deepen to the extent that China it's investing more abroad. It has to, to, to mobilize its savings away from China as investment in China continues to, uh, to move down. At the beginning, uh, these investments were significantly associated with commodities and ensuring the supply of commodities for China. And eventually, this has been diversifying to other sectors, to the service sector, et cetera. So we're seeing a, a more diversified pattern of investment, of Chinese investment in Latin America. And I think that will continue. So there are there are opportunities conceivably in the in that coming out of that relationship between the U.S. and China. Could we talk briefly about the role of the porteros for a little at this point? In terms of currency, we have a strong dollar at present, which is usually over history difficult for Latin America. Okay, we don't have pegged currencies like we did in the 90s, but it still puts pressure. And you also have, with the significant exception of Mexico, very low real rates of interest and the ability of some of the countries to borrow in dollars at really very historically attractive 
rates, three or four percent for if you're a country like Chile. Is there any risk of um, of moving towards over indebtedness if the, if if the dollar strengthens? Are there any risks of a return to the dynamic we saw, you know, most most terribly in the 1990s? Um, so, uh, and is there any more um, ammunition, I, I guess, aside of Mexico, which seems to be different, to cut rates, to use monetary policy if the countries of Latin America want to do so? So, 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 so I think I, I, I agree with, with you that the first, in, implicit in the first question, I mean, extremely low interest rates in the world represent a, a, a very attractive opportunity for, for, for the region but it poses medium-term risks. And a little bit, uh, we have highlighted that in our, uh, uh, what's called the fiscal monitor, that it's a, a, a publication that we put out looking at public finances throughout the world, that when you actually look at how debt to GDP ratios have evolved in the last 10 years in emerging markets, we have seen a significant increase in public debt throughout the world. In a sense, that it's also a reflection that countries were able to do things that they have not be, been able to do before, that is basically to use counter-cyclical fiscal policy to go through the, the global financial crisis, the spillovers of the global financial crisis, but obviously in doing so, they incur debt. That, to the extent that low interest rates continue, I, I think many of the countries in Latin America can service that, these debts, uh, their, their budgets have space to service this debt, et cetera, but you're totally right that if we, if we go into negative growth for a protracted period of time or a depreciation of their currencies, uh, uh, eventually their capacity to service their debt will be a little bit under, under stress. Or if we, if we enter a phase of capital outflows so that uh, international capital flows are not willing to refinance amortizing debt. However, when you look at many of the, of, of the, let's say, relatively healthy economies in, in Latin America, you don't see the problems that you saw, let's say, in the 80s or in the 90s. Today, you see, I mean, most of the countries in Latin America with relatively manageable current account deficits. Secondly, you see a lot of the indebtedness has not been that biased towards foreign currency. So you see the sovereign also uh, developing the domestic financial markets. So in a sense, there's more and more local currency debt in, in emerging markets and in Latin America. In that, and in that sense, if the currency depreciates, the, currency, the country does not need to pay more in their local currency for its debt. What used to happen when, when they incur an increasing share of, of dollar debt. Financial systems also uh, uh, basically get a lot of their funding from the, domestic, uh, from the domestic markets. And having a floating exchange rate and low inflation also helps. Having say, said all of that, obviously it is a concern that the increasing levels of debt, if you end up having a sudden change in the mood of markets, of financing emerging markets, it will create strains in some countries. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, the example of some Latin American countries that did not have had sound fundamentals and were significantly increasing their debt levels in 2016, 17, 18, 
that eventually saw sudden stop in capital flows, like in Argentina and Ecuador, et cetera, it's a very clear signal that, I mean, this risk is still there. But what I would say, again, just to summarize, is that healthy fiscal position, healthy, healthy financial uh, systems, and a, a, an important buildup of international reserves by central banks with floating currencies generates an environment in which it is less likely, but still a, a risk for, for the region. Now, following on from that, I'd like to ask a, a little more about um, Argentina. Um, and the role of the IMF. Obviously, you're very limited on what you can say about the future um, uh, of the, the, the funds negotiations with Argentina, but we've seen this very painful deterioration in Argentina for the, over the last two years, which is very sad for all those of us who wish that country well. What are the lessons that you think the fund should draw from the Argentine experience when it comes to other potential programs in the region, I guess Ecuador being the most likely example, but to the extent that you can discuss this, what are the lessons from the Argentine experience and how do you think the IMF should apply them? I think, I mean, like in, in all of our programs, we eventually we have an internal process to look at a, a the programs that we have been involved in and, and, and derive the lessons from those programs and we uh, eventually uh, uh, that process will be conducted and will derive, let's say, from an institutional perspective, uh, the lessons of the program. But clearly, I mean, the case, uh, the case of, of, of Argentina is, is, is highly illustrative of uh, uh, the time it takes to solve macroeconomic imbalances. No? So in a sense, uh, if, if we go back uh, to 2016, 2017, the Argentinian economy had a significant public sector deficit. Uh, uh, it was when it regained access to the international capital market, it started running a significant current account deficit. And, and once that the sources of financing dried out, I mean, correcting these twin deficits, it's uh, costly, it's painful, and sometimes it's not sustainable. No? So, so, so in that sense, uh, uh, it's important to, to, to address these problems head on early in, in the process. And that's something that we also saw in, in Ecuador, no? that it takes uh, time for, 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 uh, for these policies to, to work. And, and also the, the, the uncertainty that eventually gets generated by significant rollovers of debt mm. uh, uh, that, that, that generate significant stresses in financial markets uh, uh, are very delicate to, to deal with. We're, we're, we're working with the current Argentinian uh, government. Uh, actually, I mean, the minister was, was here last, uh, last Tuesday. Uh, we also had a meeting with him uh, the, uh, the following day. And, 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 and yeah, and conversations are, are taking place and the work is being accelerated in, in the last few weeks and a mission will, will be going to Argentina in the first half of, of, of February to continue the work and, and, and basically to exchange ideas and, and, and to help as much as possible Argentina, I mean, to manage, I mean, this difficult, this very difficult time in which, I mean, the economy, I mean, has a, a significantly contracted uh, 
for the last two years, I mean, poverty has, has gone up, and therefore the urgency to put in place policies that this government has already been doing to, to, to address uh, uh, the, the critical situation, but also to start laying the foundations for, for growth, employment generation, et cetera, for the future. But it's a, a, a very complicated situation that I'm pretty sure those that came to the breakfast here uh, on Monday or Tuesday uh, got a, a, a very good description for, from the Minister of, of the Economy in Argentina. And in Ecuador, I mean, the, the, the government of Lenin Moreno is uh, basically in the middle of implementing their economic program that basically tries to tackle a similar issue. I mean, both a very large fiscal deficit and a, a, a wide current account uh, deficit that open up when the price of oil collapse, and especially given uh, the dollarized nature of, 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 of the economy, not having another source of counter-cyclical uh, uh, levers to help the economy. So, so they had to start uh, addressing the, their financing gap by adjusting public, uh, public finances. And also they needed to open up the economy for private sector participation. So in a sense, I mean, the government of Ecuador, after a, a, a significant expansion of government activities in sector that, sectors that traditionally are occupied by, by the private sector, but given that they had a lot of resources coming from the increased value in oil exports, when the price of oil collapsed, I mean, they had to do th two things. On the one hand, uh, start living within their own new means of, of lower oil prices from the government side, and at the same time, trying to open up activities to the private sector so that the private sector can take over what the government was doing in electricity, in oil, etc. Right. before when it had resources to do it. Okay, now let's cross to the other side of the, the southern cone. Uh, the greatest drama we saw in the region last year was in, in Santiago, in Chile. Um, and the most remarkable event that we, are, we know is planning to happen this year is that they have a referendum to see if they can agree to, to, to uh, rewrite their constitution. Um, First of all, how much how much uncertainty does the Chilean situation create? Those images during the events of October were very, very startling. And also, in terms of the um, in terms of the issues we were discussing, the, the difficulty of addressing secular slow growth. Will the kind of issues that that uh, Chile Chile is trying to address, the great problems, the very real problems of inequality, will the, the approach that they're taking make it that much harder to deal with the problem of growth? I mean, first, uh, let, let, let's uh, uh, accept that, I mean, we didn't foresee, and I think almost no analyst following the, the Chilean economy anticipated or, or, or sent, I mean, a warning that, I, I, I mean, these things uh, or the possibility of, of, of this social discontent was going to manifest the way it did. No? So, so first, I think one has to be extremely humble in trying to explain what's going on in Chile because we, we, 
We praised lots of things that were to praise from the Chilean economic model, but definitely we were all blindsided from these things that, that happened. I mean, reading from what a lot of a, a, a Chilean economists and political scientists, et cetera, have been saying, I mean, there, I mean, there are many dimensions to this uh, uh, that, that, that get closer to explaining what, what happened. I mean, obviously, on, on, on the one hand, you have, I mean, the, the macroeconomic for, forces that, I mean, economies that were growing relatively fast during the commodity boom kind of stagnated from, from some time. Then you have the issue of Latin America, although having been a, a, a part of the world that was able to reduce inequality in the last uh, uh, 12 years, it's one of the regions that has the highest inequality uh, uh, levels in, in the world. Uh, then, then you have, I mean, also the issues of inequality of opportunities. Now, when you look of uh, the, the opportunity of uh, high quality education, of a good health uh, services, et cetera, Latin America and Chile are, are, are relatively un, un, unequal. Uh, then you have the issue of market concentration, market power that, that distributes, again, resources from uh, uh, the very few who own those corporations to, to the largest uh, pop population. And then you have, I mean, a little bit the, the, the significant drop in, in perceived legitimacy of the political system by uh, uh, the general population. Now, when you look at uh, uh, acceptance or the answers to, to these surveys on, on how do they rate different actors in the political system. I mean, all these answers show a significant lack of, 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 of trust in, in the political system, or really the political system representing the interest of, let's say, the median voter. And on top of that, after the corruption scandals that actually uh, 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 were widespread in Latin America, there was also this feeling that, uh, I mean, the system had generated these equilibriums in which the, the, the complicity between the private sector and the government, et cetera, was perpetuating market power and were perpetuated this, uh, 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 this bad equilibrium. So a combination of many of, of, of these factors eventually translated in the case of Chile with a small trigger that was the increase in the price of the subway of all these things. And I would add, I mean, also an issue of a, a, a low quality of public services, be it education, being transport, and, and also a, for a society that is reaching the levels of a higher middle income society, maybe a relatively low level of mutualization of risks between society, no? So, so if, you want, if you want good healthcare, you better get a private sector insurance. If you want good education, if you got a good pension, save for it. And in that sense, maybe a sense that you need a larger state to do a little bit of inter-household insurance uh, for society, no? And I think all those things kind of manifest in, in this event. And now I, I think the big, challenge for, for Chile is how they engage in this process in which they, 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 they maintain the things that made Chile being an economy that actually grew at the highest rate, average rates in Latin America for the last 25 years, significantly reduced poverty, et cetera, but in the same time create a system that is much more inclusive. 
That is going to weigh on, on growth. I mean, we have revised our, our growth projections for 2019 from almost 3% to, to 1%, and for the same thing for 2020. And I think going forward, I mean, Chile will have a lower growth path. The true, the true question will be if this lower growth in the next few years in which this new constitution is discussed and this new system is, is, is built will be a worthwhile investment to come out of that yeah. with an economy that will be able to, to, to regain the, the growth engines that it had before, but at the same time has a, a, a much more inclusive growth process. I would say if that is the outcome, it will be a great investment. The big risk is to engage in this process. And if, if you lose, I, I, I mean, if, if you lose the, the stability, the, the, the development of the financial system that you had in Chile, the, an economy that had a rate of investment that was one of the highest in Latin America, et cetera. If you lose that, then you will lose in inclusiveness as well. Because yeah. if you don't grow, there's less to distribute. And in that sense, I think that the biggest challenge is, 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 is to achieve uh, that. And in a very simple way, a lot of Latin American countries kind of aspire to converge to Chile. So now what Chile needs yeah. to avoid is to converge to Latin America. No? They need to continue to be the leaders of now of inclusiveness and growth. Okay, Convergencia. There used to be a political party called that in Mexico. Uh, um, one last question before I'm going to um, open up to the audience for, for questions. One of the most significant specific issues that annoyed people in Chile was pensions, um, which is very concerning because the Chilean pension model was regarded as the template, the model for pension reforms in a lot of the rest of the world. Certainly when I was covering Mexico, the growth of the Afores was very much, wasn't a direct copy of the Chilean system, but it was very much inspired by the Chilean system. Um, what are the chances for creating a workable pension system across Latin America and for creating um, the kind of pool of local domestic patient capital that I think everyone can agree is needed, what are the chances given that we can now see that even the Chilean model hasn't, we, I think we have to say from the reaction it has had on the, the streets, it hasn't worked or it has not produced good enough results? No, oh, you're right. I think the, 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 the pension system, it's an issue that has been discussed significantly in the last five years throughout the, the region. I think we have to, to remember that, I mean, the pay-as-you-go systems that we had before generated significant fiscal strains and instability in the, in the region in, in public finances. When the move towards these uh, uh, um, defined contributions and individual account systems uh, was done, uh, um, let's say we, we took away these risks from uh, uh, the state accounts, but we moved these risks to the household. So in that sense, if you were not able to be employed for 35 years, then your pension will not be enough. If, 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 you, if your wage 
actually suffer significantly through your life cycle, then your pension will not be good enough. So a lot of the risk were shifted from public finances to household finances. And in that sense, a, a, by construction, a lot of this system had important original sins. I think that the, the concept was partially fine in saying, let's move to, to, to an individual account system where you save for retirement in a mandatory way. However, I think we did not incorporate the fact that many of these countries have a high, many of these countries have a high informality rate. So people don't contribute throughout their lives. Secondly, in many of these countries, even if you don't go to informality, throughout life you go in and out of formal or formal jobs. And then your density of contribution is not 35 years, and that's being on average 15. And given that, and given also the political reality on when the reforms were done, the contributions were actually optimistic to actually give a decent pension at the end, I think with the hope that the political system in the future will actually get together and generate an increasing contribution. So those things, let's say, are parameters that need to be fixed of this system. But also, I mean, the system, I think, lacked a significant solidarity pillar. So all of, of, of those citizens that were not going to be part of the system because they don't work or they work just a few years, huh? I mean, also they, I mean, society is telling they deserve a pension. And that pension has to be funded from the budget. And, and that's a little bit the, 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 the argument that I was doing before, that also as economies have grown and as you move to much more democratic systems, then the population does demand some level of mutualization of risk. So those of us that are not going to find jobs every year, we deserve some minimum pension. So, so, so in a sense, I think the systems have been moving in this uh, direction, and, and I think there, there, there are important proposals in Chile that are being discussed to try to do this, to, to strengthen the individual account system, but also to complement it with these solidarity pillars uh, that, are, that are important. And it's important to design these uh, uh, schemes in a way that also they do not generate incentives to be informal rather than formal. And that's a, a, a little bit the, the challenge that in designing this system, not only pension, but also health insurance, that you want to provide a, a, a some degree of insurance and pension for all of the population, but you don't want to create a system that is biased against formality by a, a, by design. So, so, so I think that's a challenge that the, that the region is facing. And, and the last point, I think, I mean, also the 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 the, the, the AFPs in Chile had also a significant positive byproduct of really generated a strong support for the development of a domestic uh, uh, capital markets. And therefore, to, uh, to, to generate an important source of long-term savings for uh, investment in, in, in the productive economy. And this is also part of the success of Chile. So we, we need to cover all these uh, elements when we think how, how to, to reform these systems uh, to achieve better coverage, some more mutualization, and much better replacement rates of, of the pension. That means that the, the, the relationship between the pension that you give and the average wage that you were earning before retirement 
to be much higher than what they are today. Right. It's not going to be easy. I think we can summarize. Now, does anybody in the audience have a question they would like to ask? The microphone can go straight to the gentleman behind you and then pass it back after you. Thank you, John and Alejandro. So my question is twofold. One about Mexico, where the bar seems to be very low for 2020, and the other one about Brazil, where the bar seems to be very high for 2020. So first on Mexico, with UMCA in the rearview mirror, and as you mentioned, the first year of a sexenio being always very slow, now that we have the plumbing in place for AMLO to start pumping money into the economy, what are some of the upside risks to GDP that you see? With a stable US, and assuming that coronavirus does not get to Mexico, what are some of the upside risks to Mexican GDP in 2020? Contrary to Brazil, 2019 was a year where the external environment and the dispute between the US and China really helped the Brazilian external environment and Brazil gained a lot of market share of exports to China, supporting the currency and supporting part of the growth recovery. Now with US and China in truce, that should no longer be the case for 2020. How do you think about you know, the recent or the ex potential expectations of a deceleration in, in Chinese activity and how that can derail the Brazilian story? Can Bolsonaro's reforms be enough to offset the external, the impact from the external environment? Thank you. I mean, on, on, on Mexico, I, I, I mean, I think it's a, 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 it's a very good question because, I mean, the, the, all the analysis seems to concentrate on the downside risks, given the, the, the uncertainties that have been generated by the, these important regulatory changes in key sectors of the economy. Uh, and I think that's an important factor. However, I think we might be minimizing the turnaround that the Mexican economy can have because first, I mean, it has been many years in which, let's call it USMCA uncertainty, way over the Mexican economy, starting with the election, the, the campaign in the US before the 2016 election. So in that sense, I mean, it has been four years in which investment in the exporting sector in Mexico has been dampened by free trade uncertainty. And that has been removed significantly. So, so, so I think that's, that's important. Secondly, I think we concentrate a lot on the, on the, on the uncertainties generated by, by the government on the micro side but maybe we are oblivious to the reduction in uncertainty that I think has taken place in the first year on the macro side. I think there were lots of fears of fiscal mismanagement. There were lots of fears of financial mismanagement, of meddling with the pension system, of putting in place regulation that will force credit to some sectors. We haven't seen any of that. A government that has been very respectful of the independence of the central bank. So in, so in a sense, I do think that maybe there was, I mean, a bit of investment that took a wait and see attitude 
And now I mean with the conviction that macroeconomic stability, it's a significant objective of the current government, is going to start to work. So, so I would say the combination of the free trade agreement in, in, in the US, the effect of manufacturing in the world picking up again, and I think, let's say, this improvement in uncertainty on the side of macro, on macro policies, it could be a source of, of upside risk. And I think in the case of, 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 of Brazil, I mean, you're right. I mean, everybody's kind of positioned on the other side. I mean, where after pension reform, people think that uh, Paulo Guedes is Superman, no? that he can pull off, I mean, this broad reform agenda. And, and maybe now uh, the bar is a little bit too high in terms of expectations. However, it's important to, to say that the outcome in terms of policies has been very good in Brazil. But the effect of those policies on growth was not there in 2019. So I think, again, I would say that the bar, at least our expectation that growth will be 2.2 in, in 2020 is pretty low for an economy that uh, had a severe uh, contraction three or four years ago. Then it has been growing at 1%, 0 0.5%. And last year, it grew at 1%, 1.2%. So in a sense, I mean, just a little bit of investment, a little bit more consumption, I think, will push the economy towards, uh, uh, towards the 2%. So I think in that sense, it, also, it, it is also a prudent uh, benchmark for the Brazilian economy, given the series of positive news, let's say, on the economic policy side that, that, the, that we have seen. So, so, so I, I, I do think that there is upside. Uh, and I think there's a little bit more upside on the Brazilian case than in the Mexico case, because, I mean, that's a little bit what the markets are telling you. When you look at the equity market, I mean, it's pretty clear, I mean, when mm -hmm. you look at markets, I mean, you look at Mexico, you look at fixed income, and you look at equity, the market is telling you, we believe the macro story, we are a little bit uh, uh, skeptical about the micro, no? I mean, the stock market has been flat, yeah. uh, no activity in, in the stock market. But on the, on, on the fixed income side, you see a lot of activity. And I think in Brazil, you have seen both things. And also, I think the significant decline in real interest rates in Brazil is something that we can really not model that well, because Brazil has never seen these real interest rates in their life. So, so maybe that's another source of upside for the case of Brazil. It sounds like the falling house prices for the, for the feds here in the US. Okay. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, just to elaborate on this uh, point about Brazil, uh, but I would counter-argument that uh, foreigners uh, have been and are still very skeptical about Brazil. So it's kind of this uh, dichotomy where there's a very positive mood uh, inside the country, but foreigners are still skeptical about what's going on. So what's uh, the, your take, your view on that? Are you more with the locals' uh, optimism or with the uh, international uh, negative? I mean, uh, uh, I mean, locals are always much more volatile, no? When things are wrong, they, they, they always, always thought it was the end of the world. But, I mean, we, we take a much more neutral position. We also see, I mean, significant optimism in investors here in the US. Uh, so so, so, so I, I would not totally share that view that foreigners are, let's say, negative. But it's true that, that, that 
you always see much more volatility between locals and foreigners. And what we're seeing now, it's a, a, maybe some exuberance on, on the locals. But foreigners, I think, at least, I mean, the people that we interact with are much more positive with Brazil than they were two years ago. Yeah, but the flows have been very negative. So if you look at the uh, outflows in 2019 from foreigners in the equity markets, uh, was very significant. We didn't see foreigners participating in privatizations as uh, yeah. they should. And also, I mean, external bonds they, uh, are decreasing, right? Uh, corporates have been exchanging external to internal debts. So in terms of the flows, the foreigners have been uh, exiting. But it's also true that when you have, I mean, I mean, when you have interest rates coming down uh, by the amount, I mean, for 14% to 4%, it makes all the sense in the world to, 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 to change to, 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 to local, uh, local currency denominated debt. And also with the low rates of growth that Brazil has gone through, there's excess savings in, in Brazil. So, so I agree with you that, I mean, it has also been a time for, for uh, some investors uh, uh, to cash in their, their earnings in Brazil. But, but besides looking at asset prices, I think when, when you talk to people, I, th I think within the region, uh, Brazil is one of the countries in which you sense a, a bit more optimism. When you look at M&A flows, uh, FDI flows into Brazil, etc., you still see a, a relatively good performance when you look at three-year three, three year averages. So, so yeah, I, 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 I think, I mean, also the degree of skepticism is logical in the sense that uh, given the, the, the swings that you have had in these countries, people are much more cautious. But I think we are in the part of the cycle in which there, there, there's a decent degree of optimism vis-a-vis -vis Brazil. Okay, we have time for one more question. Thank you. Hi, my name is Domitila Delacha. I'm a reporter from La Nación Argentina. Uh, I was wondering, going back to Argentina again, uh, given all the expectation that is going on regarding not only the debt, the national debt, but uh, the Buenos Aires bond. I was wondering what would be the impact for Argentina if bondholders reject uh, Governor Kisilov's request to delay the payments. Thanks. I mean, I, I, I don't think you expect that we will uh, answer that question and speculate on what will be the reaction. I think first, I mean, we, do, we, don't, uh, we don't comment on, on debt negotiations uh, from the point of view of the IMF, and, and this is also very speculative of what will be the, the reaction, so yeah, I have no comment. Okay, just one short. Uh, you mentioned the IMF mission team going to Argentina in February. Uh, what are you expecting from all those meetings? I think uh, what, I mean, we had a meeting with, the, uh, with the, our team had a meeting with the minister here uh, at the beginning of the week. I think there will be uh, some exchanges uh, in Rome next week, and then uh, the mission will, will be going to Buenos Aires. What we expect is to continue to, uh, uh, to exchange views, to hear to, to, uh, in, in much more detail uh, uh, their economic plans for, for, to, to bring Argentina back 
to a self-sustainable and inclusive uh, growth process, and also obviously on the public finance side, uh, uh, on the monetary side, etc. So that's a little bit the, 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 the process that, that, that we're engaging with. So, and we have seen a, a significant increase in, in, in the work that is taking place in Argentina and in the engagement with, that, with our teams in the specific issues in which we are involved. No? So we're looking forward to that and understanding uh, better the, the economic program that is being put into place. Uh, by the current administration. Okay, well, I uh, stand in proud journalistic solidarity. A reporter has to ask a question, and uh, uh, yes, and I know exactly what it's like when the question isn't quite answered the way you were hoping. So, um, with that, thank you very much indeed, Alejandro. It's been a very interesting hour's conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This episode was produced by Luisa Lemmy. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. Find out about upcoming concerts at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Please take a moment to subscribe, share, and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.